0: And welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we look at a new public policy book and talk to the author about their recommendations for how to improve things in the public policy sphere. This week, we talk to Dov Zakheim, the author of A Vulcan's Tale, his recollections of the Bush administration's efforts in Iraq and especially in Afghanistan. Now, it seems to me, if you wanted to get a book contract... What you should have done was work for the Bush Defense Department, as Zakheim, a former Undersecretary of Defense, Don Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense, Doug Feith, another former Undersecretary of Defense, and Paul Bremer, who headed the Reconstruction Authority in Iraq for the Defense Department, all have written books. Some of them overlap, some of them contradict. We're going to talk to Dov Zakheim about all the books that have come out of the Defense Department in the Bush years. And... More importantly, about some of the policies that came and how they did them well, and sometimes how they could have done them better. So with that in mind, we will talk to Dove about his book, A Vulcan's Tale. Hello, Dove Zakheim, how are you? I am
1: fine, thank you. Good to talk to you, Tebby.
0: Thanks for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. I'd love to talk to you about your book, A Vulcan's Tale, but I'd like to start with our traditional first question, which is can you give a little bit about your background, your bio, and how you came to be who you are and how you came to write this book.
1: Sure. Um, I have spent half of my life uh, in policy, either in government or working on policy outside government, and half my life dealing with numbers, either in business, as a contractor, as a banker, uh, and then as comptroller of the Defense Department. So uh, I have this kind of peculiar perspective because my friends, many of whom... Are in the policy world had no idea that I knew very much about business at all. The people I knew in my business capacity tended not to have any idea that I knew anything about policy. The, the worlds are just so far apart from one another, and in a sense, that's what drove me to write this book. Because one of the major themes of the book is that it's all very nice to make policy, but if you don't account for implementation early on. That policy may well not work out.
0: That's not just one of the major themes of the book, but that is your actually quite stark conclusion, including your, your last line. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of coming to write a book. You know, It seems to me if I wanted to get a, a book contract I mentioned in the introduction, the best thing to have done would have been to work in the Bush Defense Department because Doug Fife, Paul Bremer, Don Rumsfeld, now you have all written books. Is that normal, is that traditional to have people at such a high level, so many of them from one department writing books, or is there something unique going on in the Bush Defense Department that uh, needs to be discussed?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I suspect part of it is that uh, there was a major story to tell here. I mean, after all, two wars started while we were in the department. Uh, I recall I wrote my first book about uh, my difficulties and disagreements with Israel Uh, because I uh, led the charge in killing a program that was very dear to some of the Israeli leadership's hearts called the Lobby Airplane. And uh, as I recall, uh, apart from myself, there was really nobody else in the Weinberger Defense Department other than Mr. Weinberger himself, who wrote a book. Richard Pearl, who at one point was my boss, wrote a book, uh, but it was a novel. Uh, But again, uh, the Weinberger years were terribly important. Uh, They were, in many ways, some of the best years of my life. But two major wars is a big story. And uh, different people, you know, it's the Rashomon Effect. Uh, Different people sitting in different places will have different views.
0: Talk about that Rashomon Effect for a little bit, if if you will. Have you read the other books, by Bremer, Rumsfeld, etc., and compared their tales to your tales, do you think they, they correspond? One very basic comparison I did is you talk about Doug Feith quite often in your book. He only mentions you once in his book.
1: That's absolutely right. Um, and he mentions me actually just as sitting on an airplane uh, with him when we flew back from, uh, I guess we all, as the, the the military term is we married up in England and flew back on uh, September 12th to hear the president.
0: And you tell Uh, that story as well.
1: And I tell that story as well. Uh, I think the difference in part is my focus was so heavily on Afghanistan, number one. Uh, And uh, if you look at Doug's book, the the word Afghanistan tends not to appear after about page 150. Uh, And that's because Doug got wrapped up with Iraq, which is the major theme of his book. that's number one. Uh, Number two is one of the themes of my book is that uh, Afghanistan tended to become second fiddle. Uh, Why, after all, did the comptroller of the department, regardless of my policy background, why did the comptroller be asked, as I was, to uh, become the civilian coordinator for Afghanistan? As you well know, uh, Tevi, from your experience in government, people tend not only to protect their turf, but to try to expand it. Uh, Doug did not try to do that. He was quite comfortable with me uh, doing what I was doing. Uh, he was there at the initial meeting when I was asked by Rumsfeld to do this. Uh, and uh, part of it was that he and I are friends. Part of it is that uh, he trusted me. Uh, but part of it is that Afghanistan was just not foremost on his mind. So from his perspective, uh you know, Zakheim doesn't show up as often. Uh, on the other hand, from my perspective, I wasn't going to do anything that affected policy without checking in with him. Uh, if you look at the uh, Mister Rumsfeld's memoirs, Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, I appear on one page. Doug appears on more pages. David Chu, who was his uh, Undersecretary for Personnel, appears on two pages, but it's actually a paragraph that carries over to the second page. And his first, in fact, I think almost all of his uh, acquisition undersecretaries didn't appear at all. Uh, you know, there's a lot to write about and you focus on what you want to focus on. So uh, there isn't really, in my mind, a discrepancy, but it kind of, in the case of Doug, it underscores again, uh, the people involved in policy tend to leave implementation to others.
0: You mentioned that you and Doug are friends and you talk about this group of eight people, the Vulcans. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about who the eight Vulcans were. It seems that most of you knew each other before going in. And did you remain friends after the administration with all those people? And, and did the, the Vulcans themselves remain friends with one another?
1: Yeah, well, uh, first, Doug was not a Vulcan, and I still consider him a friend. I think he considers me uh, his friend. Um, Rumsfeld was not a Vulcan, and we've stayed in touch. The Vulcans were actually, uh, there were only seven of us, eight of us, including myself, so seven others. There was Steve Hadley, whom I see on rare occasions, Condi Rice, ditto, Uh, Rich Armitage, whom I've stayed in touch with, Um, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, we grew apart. Uh, We grew apart when I was in government, and uh, I think the book makes that pretty clear uh, then there was, let's see, who else? That's for Bob Zelik whom I haven't seen much since he's been at the World Bank. So we're in slightly, more than slightly different worlds. Um, Bob Blackwell, uh, whom I see on occasion and we're, we're quite friendly. And I'm trying to think of who my, oh, Richard Pearl with whom I'm still friendly. Uh, so yeah, you know, and, and some of the others were friendly with each other. Uh, you know, one of the things I was told by a good friend of mine, I will not mention his name. Actually, there's no reason why not. Uh, Jim Roach, uh, with whom I've stayed close, uh, who was Secretary of the Air Force, and Jim once said to me, I hope that when I leave government, I stay friendly with the people I was friendly with when I came into government. And that was because in his experience, not necessarily personal, but from what he knew, that isn't always the case.
0: You have a, a long riff in the book, and I think it's an important one, on what the Vulcans were not. They're often accused of being a bunch of neoconservatives. Most of them were not. They're often accused of being the highest level people in government, the, the Cheneys and the Rumsfeld. They, they were not. Why, are there, why is there so much misperception or misunderstandings about who they were and what they did? Because the,
1: the Vulcans were uh, seen by everybody as uh, being, uh, you know, candidate Bush, Governor Bush's policy people, leading policy people. And uh, in a sense, they were. Campaign policy people, as you well know yourself, don't necessarily become, in fact, generally don't become, the top people in government. Yes, uh, Mr. Cheney advised the, the governor, uh, Mr. Rumsfeld advised the governor, Mr. Powell advised the governor, but, uh, you know, uh, look, Rumsfeld may not have become Secretary of Defense at all if uh, Senator Coates had hit it off better with, with the president. Uh, you just don't know. And, and so... Uh, people make this assumption uh, that because someone is reasonably uh, prominent in uh, the campaign, they will necessarily move on to become very prominent in government. Uh, Doesn't always happen. Sometimes people are bitterly disappointed. Uh, Every administration I'm aware of has had some people whom everybody thought would get a particular job and just didn't. So that's one reason for the misperception. The other one, of course, is that Given that there is a widespread perception that the president had no mind of his own, which is nonsense, and I try to illustrate that in my book, that he was captured, I put that in quotes, by the neocons, Uh, then therefore the belief was, well, the neocons must have all been Balkans, the Balkans must have all been neocons. Not true at all.
0: And one person in the book who is not a Vulcan, not a neocon, not a famous person, but I, I have to say is kind of the villain of the book, is a woman named Robin Cleveland. Now, you and I talked a little bit earlier, and you said you didn't really want to get uh, take the bait on this, I, I guess. But, I mean, you do spend a lot of time in the book talking about her and, and all of the – problematic things she did and you know if you want to do the the index game which we talked a little bit earlier where you mentioned mentions in a book i mean osama bin laden shows up four times in the book and rob robin cleveland has half a column in in the index can you talk a little bit about her and why she was so problematic Sure, uh, well, i can't say why
1: she was problematic I, I have no idea of you know why she did what she did um what i can say is that she is actually uh representative of a certain type in government, uh, and I mentioned that in the last chapter of my book, it is so much easier to say no than to say yes in government. All it takes is somebody who's reasonably well-placed, reasonably talented, and committed to what blocking whatever it is they want to block, and they're going to block it. Now, uh, obviously, she wasn't the lone ranger in OMB, and she represents a second point that I try to stress in the book, which is the Office of Management and Budget simply has too much power. Uh, my complaint in the book is not that they didn't give DOD money, although there were cases, particularly at the beginning of the Afghan war, uh, it was very frustrating that uh, we didn't get the money as quickly as we needed, uh, and uh, we seemed to be micromanaged to death. But the real complaint is that the money didn't go to the State Department and AID, uh, which had they received the money earlier on, and uh, not necessarily the amount of money we're spending on Afghanistan today, but had it been spent earlier on, it would have been probably a lot less and gone a lot further, and I'm absolutely convinced we wouldn't be fighting a war today. Now, uh, that goes beyond any one individual. It goes to the heart of OMB's role. And in my view, the OMB should simply deal with the top line, which is to say the total amount that an agency gets. The more it tries to micromanage, I don't care how talented its people are, and by the way, a lot of the people on that staff were A, good people, and B, quite talented. When you have a small staff like OMB does, there's no way you're going to manage major agencies in detail to the extent that they try to do. And so, uh, in a sense, she is is really a, a, an exemplar of these two issues, one that people can stop things more easily than they can get them moving, and that creates a huge problem when you're trying to implement policy. Uh, and uh, secondly, and, and I give another example. I give Richard Perle, who I think is a, a tremendous uh, individual, uh, but who had very strong feelings about strategic nuclear policy. Uh, with, by the way, feelings I I shared. Uh, and was able single-handedly as a fourth-level official. I mean, he was an assistant secretary, so he had to report to the undersecretary, Frederick Clay, who reported to the deputy secretary, Frank Carlucci, who reported to Secretary Weinberger, and, of course, who reported to the president of the United States. And yet Richard Pearl single-handedly changed our strategic nuclear policy because he refused to let certain things move ahead. So that's one thing. Uh, and the second is when you combine that ability to stop things with, the power that OMB in particular has and its inclination to micromanage, uh, you run into the kinds of problems I illustrate.
0: Yeah, let me deacronymize for a second. OMB is the Office of Management and Budget, of course, and AID is the Agency for International Development. And Robin Cleveland, as you lay out in the book, was uh, blocked a lot of initiatives but also played a lot of mind games. You said she wouldn't return your phone calls. She also said that you're a Sabbath-observant Jew and that she would, when she deigned to return your calls, she would intentionally do so on the Sabbath, which I thought was a very un- unclassy behavior. Uh, and let me...
1: Clear for, for everybody, for all the listeners out there, uh, part of Jewish law is that when life is in danger, uh, all else falls away, including the Sabbath. And so I would come into the Pentagon, and I was often there when she called, uh, so, but, but that wasn't
0: what was expected. No, I would imagine not. Uh, You also talk about Joe Lieberman. You say very nice things about him kind of opening the path for Orthodox Jews to serve in government. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, his role in your relationship?
1: Yes. Uh, I once wrote a piece in the Jerusalem Post uh, in 2000, why I like Joe Lieberman and will not vote for him. Uh, I think Joe Lieberman has, uh, has set a tremendously high standard for government service. Uh, and for ethics in government service, so that's number one. Number two is that he, as he makes clear himself, uh, his ethical moral view of the world is driven by his religious view. And to me, I think uh, whether you're an Orthodox Jew or a Greek Orthodox uh, or Catholic or Southern Baptist or Mormon or whatever, uh, Muslim, if you are a believer, a religious person. I believe that uh, if you're truly religious, then you're going to wind up like Senator Lieberman. That is to say, somebody who sets a high moral standard. That's not to say that if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you can't have a high moral standard. Uh, Not at all. Uh, I know a bunch of atheists who are as moral as anyone I know. But it seems to me that what Senator Lieberman embodies isn't necessarily his orthodox Judaism per se, but his deep faith and his belief that uh, a man of faith, in his case could be a woman of faith, uh, is driven to a certain moral and ethical standard that uh, he or she would then try to uh, impart in everything they do. And to me, that's, he's, he's a wonderful example of that.
0: You obviously have high regard for Senator Lieberman or a regard that I, I must say I share, but there are senators that you have uh, not so nice things to say. So uh, Senator Thurmond apparently uh, confused you and Paul Wolfowitz, and the only uh, common characteristic you guys both have, I guess, is that you're, you're Jewish. And Then you also talk about uh, Senator Bunning, who was a famous baseball pitcher at one point in his career, and you wanted to bring a, a baseball to have him sign, and everybody uh, warned you not to do that. you want to talk a little bit or elaborate on those stories?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, in the case of Senator Thurmond, uh, it, it was just that uh, he was a very nice man. He was just very old at that point, uh, one of the longest serving senators. Uh, and he literally just got confused. Uh, he thought uh, we were testifying, I guess it must have been in the late 90s. Uh, I got there on time to testify in front of him. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz was a little bit late. And uh, when Wolfowitz sits down, he says to him, uh, Dr. Zakheim, Dr. Wolfowitz here has been sitting for quite some time waiting for you to show up, or words to that effect. And uh, it was Senator Warner, who then became chairman of the committee, sort of whispered to him, you've got these guys mixed up, and, and uh, Senator Thurman didn't take kindly to being told anything uh, about that by Senator Warner.
0: Who wasn't um, that young himself.
1: <laughs> who wasn't that young himself, but still had a good few years on uh, Senator uh, Thurmond. I believe that Senator Thurmond was at least 15 years, if not more, older than Senator Warner. Um, the, uh, the other story about Senator Bunning, uh, is Senator Bunning, uh, a lot of people, for whatever reason, thought he was a difficult individual. Okay. I cannot speak to that because that was not my experience. What happened was, uh, I'm a baseball fan and, uh, uh here I was very excited that I was gonna meet a Hall of Famer. I happened to have been at the, the game against New York Mets. Uh it was on Father's Day of nineteen sixty four. Uh and he pitched a, a, I think it was a six nothing shutout. Uh and I remember actually we were watching the scoreboard and being a Mets fan, uh I wasn't too happy until we realized that he was pitching a perfect game and all of a sudden everybody sat up in the in the ninth inning. Anyway, uh I look around my house for a baseball. Couldn't find one except this dirty ball that my kids played with in the backyard, a hardball. So I took it with me, and everybody said to me, he's not going to sign it, he's not going to sign it, and all this stuff about, you know, how difficult the person he was, which, again, as I, as I go through the story, you'll see that, uh, you know, rumors about people aren't necessarily the truth. So we go in and, and his to his office, and I'm accompanied by my staff, the, the legislative folks uh, from the comptroller staff who were arranging these meetings and, They were very, very nervous. I mean, they were just, people were just fidgeting, waiting for him to come in. Meanwhile, his conference room is like a mini Cooperstown, full of photos of players that he played with in the 60s, all of whom I recognize. And he, of course, played in both leagues. He was a Cy Young winner, for those of you who are baseball fans, in both the American and National Leagues. Well, he comes in and he was, he was annoyed, but he was annoyed for a good reason. Uh, He was presiding over the Senate and whoever was supposed to take over for him, pro tem, uh was late, and so he was stuck there, and so he comes in, and he's, he's annoyed, and he's late, and he himself down, and he just stares at me. We're sitting in sort of kitty corner next to each other. And finally, I go, I was there, and he goes, where were you? And I say, 6 nothing again from that. He goes, you were there? And I say, yeah, and we talked baseball for an hour, and I got to tell you, that's one of the highlights of my life.
0: <laughs> that's a great story. Um, another guy who you worked with who you have. By the way,
1: ball. I, I need to tell everybody, you know, everybody wonders, well, why did you tell about the dirty ball? At the end of this, I showed him the ball, and I asked him to sign it. And he goes, what a dirty ball. I said, no, it's a foul ball. Ooh, pure ball faced lie, of course, because it was a ball that the kids had played around with. He says, don't tell me it's a foul ball. I know what a foul ball looks like. And then he signed it. And I have it in my home on display.
0: I'll have to come see it sometime. Uh, another guy you, you talk about is Don Rumsfeld, obviously, who's a, a, a fascinating, a brilliant, but can also be, a, I guess, a thin-skinned guy. You say one thing you never say to Don Rumsfeld is, I told you so. Uh, do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about your experiences working with him?
1: He's not thin-skinned at all. I mean, he's got – I think I wrote him there. He's got the thick of skin in Washington. Nothing saves the man. I, I think it was more not so much that he, he didn't uh, – he, he was he was upset, and he, he didn't like it. He, he, he doesn't always brook uh, criticism well, and he wasn't consistent about this. Because I tell a story about uh, a very capable vice-admiral named Stan Zemborski, who uh, absolutely stood up to Rumsfeld when he was a rear-admiral, a, rear, a rear Admiral of the two-star, a junior two-star. And Rumsfeld actually stormed out of the office. And Zimborski figured that's the end of his military career. And I told Stan, and Stan recounted this when he retired as a three-star, as a vice admiral, that, uh, no, on the contrary, if you push back, Rumsfeld respects you. And sure enough, Rumsfeld, as I say, promoted him and, uh, thought the world of him. Uh, so he wasn't entirely consistent about this. And, and frankly, he treated me exceedingly well. Even if he did tell me not to tell him I told you so, uh, he, uh, If you made your case with the Secretary of Defense and made it strongly, and he could attack you in a way, I mean, it could be withering, but all he was trying to do was to destroy your argument. And if your argument held, he would have accepted. The notion that he uh, was purely an intimidating figure, people were intimidated by him. He didn't intimidate. There's a huge difference. he uh, simply—he's an extremely bright man, and the thoughts come out of him a mile a minute. Uh, that's why we have these so-called snowflakes, these these memoranda. He would shoot them off. He'd speak them into a, a little microphone. Next thing he knew, you got the snowflake. I actually had a little box, an inbox in my office called Snowflakes from SecDef, uh, and he saw that and laughed when he came by. Um, he just was brimming with ideas. But if you were able to make the case with him. He
0: took it. How many snowflakes did you receive? God, hundreds. <laughs> and were you high on the list or low on the list? I mean, who got the most snowflakes?
1: I have no idea. What we had, my uh, my uh, military assistant uh, would keep track because the, the front office, the, the secretary's immediate office would keep track of who responded to his requests and how You know, what was the percentage of timely responses. And that I know I was number one. But uh, in terms of how many, uh, I don't know. I'm sure Doug Feith was swimming in them, for example.
0: Yeah, I think Doug's still trying to uh, answer all of them from his perch here at the Hudson Institute. (laughs) Uh, and One thing you talk about is the difficulty of killing weapon systems, even ones that don't work. You say the U.S. Army has a terrible record at developing new weapon systems. You talk specifically about the Crusader, and you say that even when presented with the evidence that it was a problematic and not workable system, that the top officials, and this is your word, wavered. Why is it so hard to get rid of ineffective and not working, non-working weapon systems?
1: Well, there are a couple of reasons, actually. The first is people have an emotional commitment. They have bought into the notion that they need something, and they get emotionally committed, and they simply cannot see what may be right in front of them. Uh, Secondly, you've got to remember that there's always some kind of analysis that will prove whatever it is you want to see proved, that will tell you the answer you're looking for. And so there were analyses, and they would argue that the Crusader was the greatest thing since sliced bread. The issue, of course, was what was the context? We were no longer in the kind of context in which Crusader might have made sense. Uh, The same thing, by the way, with the F-22. The F-22 is a fabulous airplane. Uh, Rumsfeld and I and Steve Cambone, who later became Undersecretary for Intelligence, uh, and was maybe perhaps Rumsfeld's closest advisor of the Pentagon, uh, we all wanted to limit the numbers. We just didn't succeed. The Air Force kept pushing back and pushing back and pushing back, talking to the hills, finding all kinds of ways to get more F-22s. And finally, Mr. Gates, Secretary Gates stopped it. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, they would come up with analyses to prove their point. So they would use different measures of effectiveness. They would use different contexts. It's again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And uh, one of the great challenges is somehow to say, you know, enough. Uh, yes, this might work. It might work against the Soviet Union, but there's no Soviet Union today.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure it's always in the eye of the beholder. I mean, there are some things that are objectively not working or not worth the money. G- given these challenges you, you lay out, though, and given our budgetary budgetary challenges and our, our this looming fiscal nightmare, we're going to have to make cuts throughout the government, including in the Pentagon. What do you see as the prospects for doing that, and what would be the best way to go forward?
1: Well, uh, the the prospects are clear. I mean, the Secretary of the President has said he wants to cut $400 billion over 12 years. This is over and above the $87 billion that Mr. Gates already uh, had laid out as a cut in his future years' defense program. For those of you on listening, uh, the Department of Defense, ever since Mr. McNamara, has had, we're now talking 50 years, has had a, a program that doesn't just look at one year of spending, but looks at five or six. And it used to be called a five-year defense plan. Now it's called a 2 defense plan or defense program. Uh, Mr. Gates found $87 billion. He, uh, the president then said, no, I want $400 billion more. Uh, and in fact, uh, the chairman of the uh, Senate Budget Committee says he wants $900 billion over 10 years, as opposed to $400 billion over 12. So there are going to be huge cuts. Now, there are two ways to cut. One is to apply what's called the meat axe. Everybody kicks in 10%. That is the worst possible way to do things because you're throwing out the good with the bad. You have to have a much more focused, uh, uh, objective way of finding those reductions. Now, where can the reductions come from? They're going to be painful. Uh, But clearly, the number one candidate for reductions are the military personnel accounts. We have been extremely generous to... uh, are members of the military? After all, they lay down their lives for us. Uh, and but the, the, many of the uh, benefits were created in a different time. For example, when you retire, when originally the plan was that you could retire at forty, people were only living to sixty-five, uh, almost like the Social Security problem we have. Social Security was enacted in the nineteen thirties. People weren't living much beyond sixty. Uh, now, of course, if you retire at forty, you can be collecting a pension for the next fifty-five, sixty years. Uh another area is health care. For the first time in over a decade, people are going to increase their copays by about five bucks. A family plan right now is about four hundred fifty dollars a year. Most people give their right arms for that. We cannot afford that. Healthcare is going to be costing us over forty billion this year and over 60 billion by 2014. So we will be paying more for healthcare for our military than the entire defense budgets of our leading allies. That is just nuts. Not because we shouldn't benefit our military, but because if we don't do something about that, we will take money out of research. We will take money out of what's called procurement, which is buying the equipment for the future that will involve wars, we know that. And so our our young boys and girls 15 years from now, might have to fight with obsolescent equipment because money was put into health care. Uh, it is a
0: terrible choice,
1: but I think it's a choice that has to be made.
0: Do you think we have the political will to make those choices?
1: I don't think it can be done unless uh, the approach is taken uh, that is somewhat akin to the approach that was taken when we tried the BRAC. BRAC is an acronym that has become both a noun and a verb. It stands for base, uh, base, realignment, and closure. That's when we get the B-R-A-C. No one wanted to move a base out of their district. No one wanted to close a base in their district. Everybody else's district, fine, but NIMBY, not in my backyard, so what the Congress finally did was come up with a, a system where it was all or nothing. There was a complete package. They worked out a system that would go to the, to the Defense Department it would come back. But Congress would vote on the package, not on elements of it, up or down. That's how BRAC, we've had several of these votes now. That's how we've been able to close bases. We're going to need something like that because no one is going to want to say, I alone voted for cutting back on health care for our military. And by the way, it wouldn't be for the people serving today. It would have to be grandfathered in some way. Uh, or that I cut back on benefits generally. Or that the, another area, which will be less politically uh, charged, I think, is cutting back on uh, what, and Mr. Gates already is trying to do this, what's called staff augmentation contractors. Let me leave that for, uh, aside for a second and finish up with the military personnel accounts. Unless the Congress has some system like what I was just talking about for the base reali- uh, realignment and closure, um, it's not going to happen. And it has to happen. So there has to be some system where an individual member is protected from the wrath of his constituents because everybody voted the same way. When I when I mention contractors, there are different kinds of contractors, many different kinds. There are those who produce the tanks, planes, and ships that we we our military uses. There are those who are specialists in research and development. There are those who are specialists in things like war gaming or uh, forward planning or uh, information technology. I'm not talking about any of those. There are contractors who come in at very low cost, and the way they do it is they hire retired military people to do the same job they were doing when they were in the military. And this has become uh, almost like a, a cancer for our civil service because our civil servants now give to contractors things they should be doing themselves. You need to have to put together a PowerPoint slide. Why do it yourself? Give it to the contractor. Those kinds of people are called staff augmentees because they essentially act as staff. Mr. Gates is right in saying we got to get rid of that. That will save us billions of dollars in a different set of accounts, not the personnel accounts, but the operations and maintenance accounts. Those are the accounts that we spend money on to operate and maintain our systems, training, repair, and so on, but also go to, many, to these kinds of contractors. That is an area that I think needs to be cut back. Those contractors that work in cutting edge areas, cloud computing and information technology, or the hardware areas, the research areas, the the brainware areas if you will that's a different story
0: one other suggestion you have that might be controversial with respect to civil servants is giving the secretary of defense the ability to order civil servants to go wherever the secretary deems appropriate now it seems in an organization that, that Uh, political leaders should have the ability to do that. But as you know, there are all sorts of civil service protections in our government. And you tell the story of one woman who was very talented, who was slated to go to Iraq to head up a a reconstruction team and pulled out at the last minute because her husband thought Iraq was too dangerous. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of ordering civil servants to go wherever the political leaders deem it as fit, just like the military leaders can do to soldiers?
1: Well, if we don't do that, then you can forget about Reconstruction. I mean, one of the difficulties we're having in Afghanistan today, and I'm no fan of Reconstruction. I think that we can do some of it. I don't think we can lead it. Uh, I don't think our record is good. Um, but we can't really do very much at all if we can't send the people out there. And it's not, by the way, just defense. Uh, it involves all parts of the government, uh, agriculture. We need to help the Afghans with their agriculture. But the Foreign Agricultural Service sends people out there, and those people who go are not really farmers at all. So it's not clear how they're helpful. Uh, We need people to help with governance. Those are people from the Justice Department. Uh, We need AID people to go. AID, and I write this in my book, contracts out most of its work. So we don't have the people going. And if they're not going then uh, how do you expect things to get done? Then you're totally relying on contractors and you're not doing the job at all. So it's not just DOD. Now, how do you get around the civil service protections? Quite simple. When somebody signs up for the military, they sign up on the understanding they can be deployed anywhere. You can do the same thing with civil servants. And it's not law. It's uh, basically regulation. And OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, has already begun very haltingly to move in that direction. I believe that everybody who signs up to serve their country should serve their country wherever the country wants them to serve. And if they can't do that, don't serve country. Do something else.
0: One thing you have in terms of your overall critique, I, I would, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to use the word, but it, it's sort of like a European critique of the American policy towards the Iraq and Afghanistan war. You characterize certain officials in the Defense Department as brash, not knowing the language of the countries where where they're going to help kind of have a macho go it alone approach. Would you agree with that characterization that you sort of agree with the European critique of the, I don't want to say the ugly American, but the uh, the, the kind of macho or brash American? It's not a matter of brashness. It's not a matter of
1: macho. I mean, yes, there were certain officials who, uh, again, were... Ready to go in uh, without in, into war without thinking about the consequences of implementation. Um, but the, the issue about culture is a very different one. Not that we're brash people. Our people are absolutely convinced, and we have good reason to be, quite honestly, that ours is the best system in the world. I happen to think it is. That doesn't mean that other people think their system is doesn't even they don't think their system is the best in the world. We're going into places that have long cultures, long histories, and ways of doing things differently. And we tend to be tone deaf. Uh, I tell a story in the book of, uh, I was in mazar sharif in Afghanistan. They wanted me to see a school, a girl's school. It was a Friday. All these little girls were in school. Now, they probably wanted to be home playing or else dad and mom were going to take them to the mosque. because Friday is the Muslim holy day. Instead... There at the school, waiting for this American official to show up, and when I show up, the principal of the school wants me to join him for lunch. And anybody who knows the Muslim world knows that hospitality is an art. It's not. It, it, it's beyond an art uh, with uh, with Muslims, particularly in the Middle East and Central Asia, and not only there. This man was probably wearing probably the only suit he had. He had probably spent ages getting this lunch together. He invites me to lunch. The young captain, the civil affairs captain, the guy who's supposed to be relating to the local culture, turns around to this principal and says, the undersecretary is too busy. He has to visit the facility. He can't join you for lunch. The man looked like he had just been shot through the head. He was so disappointed. And I said to the captain, take my staff, take some of my staff, do the tour of the school. I'm sitting down with the principal. And when we sat down, he had laid out a banquet. That's what I'm talking about. It's not that our people aren't well-meaning. It's just that we don't seem to get the fact that other people do things differently, have a different set of priorities, different set of values. I mean, go and tell people that Sharia law isn't the law. I don't want Sharia law to govern my country. But you can tell them it's not the law. They've been living with that law for 1,300-plus years. And so you've got to have some sort of understanding and feeling for other people's value systems where they will attach more weight to other things than we do. Those with languages as well. Most Americans don't speak another language. Most Europeans speak three or four. It's just the way it is. And when it gets down to those sorts of things, then it becomes much more difficult especially if, if the specialists in the government don't even go out to these places to try to reconstruct. I mean, I just don't think it works. We, we don't have the natural inclination to that. We've never had a colonial office. We're not occupiers, as Mr. Karzai said. We're not out imperialists. We're not out to colonize. But at the same time, we don't have a, a, a sense of the culture, maybe because we're not out to colonize, and we shouldn't be. Maybe, we, maybe we're maybe we okay the way we are. If we are okay the way we are, and I tend to think we are, then um, we better think twice about just how we want to go about building other states.
0: You know, I know for a fact that if I was expecting to have lunch with you and some captain told me I couldn't, I would be crestfallen as well. Uh, but, uh, Jeff, you've been incredibly ge- uh, generous w- with your time. I- I- we have time for our final question on, on New Books in Public Policy, which I call our signature question, which is what have you learned as a result of the book? What policy changes would you recommend as a result of the work that went into researching and writing this book?
1: Well, uh, obviously some of the recommendations I have were notions that I had developed for some time, like, you know, uh, Reigning in OMB, probably one that, two that that jumped out at me. Uh, One is I think we need two deputy secretaries of defense. I give credit to Secretary of State Clinton. She's got two deputy secretaries of state. Uh, You can have a deputy secretary of defense who's a policy person, and you need one. Uh, There are, you know, we've got a war on terror. Every country is important. During the Cold War, maybe 25 countries were important. Uh, every country has a Secretary of Defense or Minister of Defense, a Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, maybe a President, maybe a King, maybe a Sultan, maybe an Emir who wants to see the Secretary of Defense of the United States. Well, if you got one hundred and ninety of those of those countries with all these officials wanting to see secretary, sektik, secretary' not going to be able to do anything else. He or she is not going to have time for anything, not to mention testimony on the hill and all the other things secretary has to do. The secretary needs a deputy to help him or her out with policy. At the same time, the deputy secretary has to be the chief operating officer. Mr. Rumsfeld was his own chief operating officer, and that worked well until September 10th. In fact, he gave a speech on September 10th, which was only about getting the Pentagon's act together. He said, we were our own worst enemy. Well, September 11th came around. He became secretary of war. You need a deputy that can be totally immersed in management. So you need two deputies. I learned that from my experience with Pentagon. Writing the book just convinced me. Um, the second one is what we were just talking about, state building. I started out being totally against the United States being involved in that. I changed my mind as we got into Afghanistan and I saw what we could do. I've partially changed it back as I write in my book. I don't think we can lead in state building. I think we can contribute, not just money, but talent as well, particularly if we send civil servants out uh, to whatever country it is we're trying to help out. But I don't think we should lead. I think Europeans are much better than that. Their focus is on that. And quite frankly, if we're going to spend the billions we spend on defense, including defending them, let them spend the billions on the reconstruction that's needed for the countries that are of importance to, to all of us, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's anything. I don't think we should take the lead on that. There's got to be a division of labor. I know Europe has its problems. I know the EU and the Eurozone are really in turmoil, but that is a very, very wealthy continent, and they should be doing a lot more than they're doing.
0: Well, uh, as a former Deputy Secretary of Health, I uh, am always a little wary of the dilution of the position of Deputy Secretary. But that said, you do have a a lot of intriguing ideas, and I urge people uh, to read the book and to tell people about this interview. So, Dov Zakheim, thank you for joining us on new books and public policy.
1: My pleasure. And again, I can't talk to the, the Department of Health. I can only talk to them.
0: Fair enough. You've just been listening to an interview with Dov Zakheim, the author of A Vulcan's Tale. And except for one, shall we say, <clears throat> unwise recommendation about diluting the power of Deputy secretaries, Dov has a lot of intriguing and useful ideas for how to improve us management of wars and of uh, foreign policy actions so i urge you to go out and read the book it's eye opening it tells a lot of tales names a lot of names and i think it was a perfect book for new books in public policy so i'm signing off to the podcast now i'm tevi troy your host and until next time keep reading